as you're seated, find your Bible, open it to the book of Acts once again. We're continuing our series today on the church, and last week we looked at uh, Pentecost and the, the, the preaching there and 3,000 being saved, and today we're going to pick up in the text following that uh, a sermon I've entitled, Priorities of the New Testament Church, because quickly they establish some priorities after 3,000 respond to uh, Peter's preaching at Pentecost. And these priorities become critical on how the church would move forward. Most of you are who Stephen Covey is, wrote uh, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And he describes in that book how to prioritize things in our lives that we might be more efficient and more effective. And in the book, the tasks are categorized by four quadrants. Q1, important and urgent. Q2 is important and not urgent. Q3 is not important but urgent, and then Q4 would be not important and not urgent. He suggests that highly effective people make time then for the, two, the Q2 quadrant, and doing so, they reduce the amount of time they spend on these other tasks. Uh, some of you uh, over the years have had the Franklin Planner. They use something similar in ranking tasks. A, B, and C, A being uh, vital, B being important, and C being nice. And so they sub, uh, divide those into subcategories of A1, A2, and A3. But both of these are popular marketing devices to help people prioritize what should be being done in their lives. Now, who can argue? Most of us need some help on building priorities and establish uh, uh, the habits in our life that will help us to do and be most effective. Because if you're anything like me, you oftentimes operate in the tyranny of the urgent. And whatever seems urgent at the time, we find ourselves uh, spending uh, an inordinate amount of time there. Well, in the book of Acts, chapter 2, the New Testament church suddenly, after the coming of the Holy Spirit of God, had gone from, as you know, about 120 members now to 3,000 members. And with this new influx of people, what was going to be the priority would be critical, as you would imagine. So we read here four things identified as Q1, important and urgent. We read these four pillars, these, these four critical priorities when established would catapult this new founded church into greatness. And honestly, these priorities are for us today. They're still guiding us here at Hoffmantown Church as we seek to follow the very things that were established early on in the New Testament church. So just two verses today. If we'll get those up on the screen, uh, I'm going to have to go see my optometrist. I can barely read that screen. Most of you can tell. And uh, I'm going to do my best with two verses. So, so we'll see. I, I, it's a little clearer today. Maybe my eyes are better. Let's stand on of reading God's Word. That's important. That's priority, isn't it? Okay. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized. What are we talking about here? Those who received the preaching of Peter at Pentecost, they heard and they received his word, the gospel message, and then they were baptized. And that day about 3,000 souls were added to them, and they continued steadfastly, in the apostles' doctrine, in fellowship, and the breaking of bread, and in prayer. Would you pray with me? Father, help us to be people who prioritize right things. And even today as we reflect upon 
what you established for your church to be doing and how we're to function and how we're to prioritize these critical things. I pray that we would be honest in our own objective. If we're doing the things that's expected of us, not just in our church, but in our lives personally, help us to prioritize you. Help us to put you first. May Jesus Christ be Lord of our life. And so, Lord, I would pray this day that you would speak to us through the power and the person of the Holy Spirit of God, illumine the pages of your word that we could walk through this text and we would glean some things and we would be richer in our lives for it, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I see four things here that I want to touch on. The first beginning, the Spirit-led church first prioritized what I'm calling immersion. The first expectation of these new believers would be this. They would be baptized. And while baptism would become a New Testament church ordinance, these first Jewish believers at least were familiar with a ceremonial purification. I mentioned this last Sunday in preaching uh, in, in the entrance on the south side to the old city of Jerusalem. There remains today some archaeological remains of 50 ritual baths known as mikvahs. They were there for the ceremonial cleansing that the worshiper would cleanse himself before they went into the temple complex. And so at Pentecost, after the preaching of God's word, these mikvahs would be, uh, be used as an opportune place to baptize 3,000 who responded to this gospel-driven message at Pentecost. Two things noteworthy about this baptism. First, I want you to uh, look with me about what I'm calling the term, the term of baptism. The English word baptize comes from the Greek word baptizo, which literally means to immerse or to sink. In secular Greek literature, it was used for the, to, to communicate the sinking of a ship. Plato used a word referring to someone drowning in their wine. It's a word picture of, of dyeing a piece of fab, fabric as you would completely submerge that fabric into, cha into changing its color. But actually, the English word baptize uh, was first used in the King James Bible of 1611. The translators of the King James Bible were really up against a dilemma in translating that Greek word baptizo to a, uh, immerse because this would be in conflict of the practice of the Church of England or the Anglican Church. And so what they did, they transliterated the word, creating a new English word, and that word is baptize, which meant to immerse. So I'm just telling you, baptism has always been immersion. It's always been uh, the, the, the complete submersion of the one who is following Christ. And certainly at a Baptist church, like we, we are, we, we practice baptism by immersion. And that is how we believe it happened at Pentecost. And we believe that's how it happened in the New Testament church moving forward. Truth of the matter is, every great commission church practiced baptism. And we immerse people in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that's the term. Now let's talk about the theology. Because baptism, we do not believe in baptismal regeneration, that baptism saves someone. But once again, baptism is the symbolism of salvation. What Christ has done for us. And we identify publicly with Him. 
And when one stands in, uh, in the baptistry, in the water, it's a picture of Jesus' death on the cross, suffering our death, the just for the unjust, and how he has brought us to God. And then we're laid back in the baptistry or in the water, a picture of Jesus being taken from the cross and laid in a borrowed tomb that belonged to Joseph of Arimathea. And then we're brought back out of the water, of course, symbolizing the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Paul would write in clarity in Romans 6, Or do you not know that as many were baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized unto his death? Therefore we're buried with Christ into baptism and death. And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we've been raised to walk how in newness of life. So certainly the proper theology requires a proper order of baptism. And just like in our text, the people were converted. And once they were converted, they were born again, then they were baptized. Uh, Oftentimes in, in, in the local church, there's a problem with a baptism being out of order. Maybe someone has been baptized as an infant. Oftentimes in a Baptist church specifically, someone makes a decision as a young child, as a youngster. They never really have a real experience with the Lord until later in their life. And their baptism is out of order because they got baptized and they really weren't even saved. I had a unique experience when I was a student at Southwestern Seminary back in 1982. Uh, A friend of mine was pastoring a small church down up in southern Oklahoma. And uh, he asked me if I would drive up from Fort Worth and baptize him on a Sunday morning. So that was a pretty unique experience to baptize the pastor. He had baptized many of them before, but truth of the matter is he had made a decision or made some kind of uh, a decision as a youngster, but really realized he never gave his heart to Christ till he was in his 20s. And so while he had gone along uh, for, for many years, knowing his baptism was out of order, he just wanted to get it right before his people, and I had privilege to baptize the pastor. That, that's a once-for-all-time experience, I hope. <laughs> but I may be speaking to some of you who, who had a similar experience. You know, you, maybe you grew up in the church, you made a decision, and, and truth of the matter is, there was never any life change about you. And you spent several years just really uh, indifferent to the gospel, not living your life for God, but then you had a real experience with the Lord. You gave your heart to Him, and you were born again, and your life was dramatically changed. But you just never got this baptism thing right. And I'm telling you, the truth of the matter is, if you're, it doesn't matter if you were 10 years old or if you were an infant. If it's out of order, it's out of order. If you didn't know what you were doing, it's, it, it's not all that it's supposed to be according to the order that's prescribed here in the Word of God. And so indeed, we come to be baptized as an outward profession of an inward transformation. And we're simply saying, I do believe I have received Jesus Christ as my personal Savior. I'm unashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God and the salvation. It has captured my heart and soul. I belong to the Lord. So the church was full of baptized believers. Immersion was the entrance into the New Testament church. But not only was there immersion that was the priority. Secondly, what I'm calling the indoctrination as well. In verse 42... And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. 
They had a common dedication. They had received Jesus Christ. They'd been baptized. And now we see they had a common devotion. They devoted themselves to these things. That's what the text says. Fundamental tenets of the New Testament church. So first under A, let's talk about the doctrine. What, were, what, what is the apostles' doctrine? What would be the fundamentals of their newfound faith? Well, first it says they were teaching the apostles' doctrine. So what was that? Well, here's what we know about the apostles. First, they had been involved in the ministry of Jesus Christ, and they had been personal witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus. Remember, in, as we looked at just a couple of weeks ago in Acts chapter 1, when they would choose a replacement for Judas, and they chose Matthias? Remember what they said? Here's what he has to have. He has to have been involved in the ministry of Jesus Christ. He also has to have an experience with the resurrected Christ. And so now these apostles were teaching their experience with Jesus and also what they knew and had privilege to learn about the Word of God. They were to teach God's Word. Of course that's what we're about. Our own personal experience, our testimony is valid, of course, but not, uh, not in itself. It's unique to being backed up by the, God, the Word of God and, and what the Word of God says so clearly that we're to be about. In 2 Timothy 2.2, And these things that you have heard uh, from me among many witnesses commit to faithful men who is able to teach others also. So this indoctrination will be the food for the spiritual life of all of these new believers. As Peter would write, As newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby. So let's look at not only the doctrine, let's look at some expectations, what I'm calling the duty. The duty. They were to be steadfast. That's what it says. They were to be committed, not just to hear the Word of God, but to implement it and to do it. It was, it was certainly more than we've got to get some more knowledge to these people. It wasn't just that they had to be more informed, but through their heart transformation, there, would, there was to be a, a result. There's to be a new attitude. There's to be demonstrated in new actions. They were to be giving. They were to be forgiving. They were to be loving. They were to be kind. They were now to be compassionate people. They were to have a concern and their belief would affect their behavior. It was more than we just have to get more knowledge in, in these people so they can live a right life. They've got to have a heart transformation. And honestly, the litmus test of all of our belief, does it result in a changed life? Are, are we better are we good? Are we kind? Are, 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 we, are we developing the fruit of the Spirit in our life? I did a funeral this week on Thursday. I actually did one on uh, Friday and Saturday. Drove to Oklahoma on Thursday for a lady that i uh, known most of my life. And I said this about her. I, I can't remember a lady that had a more demonstration of the fruit of the Spirit in their life. At the visitation, met an old friend there. You know what he said? She was a perfect example of 1 Corinthians 13, what love is like. I said, it's the fruit of the Spirit. It's love, it's joy, it's peace, it's patience, it's goodness, it's kindness, it's gentleness, it's faithfulness, and it's self-control. And you see, our life is to be different. It's to be transformed. Yes, we believe the right thing, but it's also this belief, it catapults us and it, 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 it gives us a, a desire to, to please God in all that we do. A desire to grow strong in our faith. I wonder today, 
has your belief got into your heart and life and making a difference in your life? Oh, it's about believing the right stuff, the apostles' doctrine, the Word of God. But is it affecting your life? So let's move quickly. Not only the immersion, the indoctrination. Next I see is a priority, what I'm calling their identification, because Luke mentions here these believers were connecting with God. He says they're connecting in two ways. One, in fellowship, and then he uses also the breaking of bread. Under A, let's talk about their commitment. They were devoted not only to God, but they were devoted one to another. That's called fellowship. We, uh, listen, if we only know one word in, in the Greek, we all know this one. It's koinonia. Koinonia. We know it, don't we? It means fellowship. So they were having a partnership. That's, that word can be translated as well in a partnership. A oneness. And here in Acts 2, the first mention of the word in the New Testament uh, fellowship is right here, koinonia. It actually is only used some 15 times in all the New Testament. But I think it's worthy of our consideration today because this is one of the priorities of the church. And the concept and critical nature of connectedness, of course, is taught throughout the Bible. And you continue reading here and you see how effective and intimate this fellowship was in verses 44 through 46. It says the believers, they shared together all their goods, and they had things, everything in common. They were taking care of each other. And fellowship became a critical part of their life. And certainly, I believe today, one of the the, the churches that are most vital, that's most loving, that's most caring, is marked by right fellowship. There's a partnership, there's a connectedness, there's a oneness of heart, mind, and spirit. I read a book a few years ago by the late Chuck Colson on the church entitled The Body. He said the number one thing that people are looking for in a church is fellowship. A place to belong to, to be a part of, to be accepted, and to be loved. Some of you remember the book by Alexandre Dumas, Three Musketeers. You remember the heroes of the story had a motto, all for one and... One for all, of course. That's koinonia. It's commitment that says, I have your back. It's a commitment that says, I'm looking out for you. I care about you. I want the best for you. And I'm willing to stand with you. This principle reciprocates across the board. A book by Lyle Schaller, Schaller, I should say, uh, that I read as well. This guy's a Methodist, but he, he has written some good things. <laughs> this one good thing on fellowship anyway. I, I'm not wholesale endorsing anything, but I'm just telling you. Here's what he said. I think this is true. On extensive research, he said, The more friendships a person has in a church, the less likely they are to become inactive, the less likely they will be to leave your church. Don't you believe that to be true? Of course it's true. The people that care about us, the friendships we have, listen, there's plenty of churches that preach Jesus Christ. What keeps us together? Why? why, It's it's a like-mindedness, of course. But truth of the matter is, it's because we know each other, we care for each other, we love each other, we pray for each other. 
There's a fellowship that's unique about us. We know each other and, 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 and others know us. And, and, and truth of the matter is, they loved us in spite of ourselves. Why would we want to leave for crying out loud? These are our people. These are our friends. It's people who care about us. When asked, 400 church dropouts, Schaller says this. When asked why they left the church, listen to this. 75% said that no one cared for me. In other words, I got isolated in that church. Nobody seemed to care. Nobody friended me. And they felt alone and felt uncared for. So let's keep our commitment to each other as priority. Let's make it our goal not only to love God with all of our heart, mind, and strength, but let us love each other as well. In Philippians chapter 2, one of my favorite chapters in all the Bible, Paul writes about fellowship there, and he says, if there be any encouragement, any consolation of love, any fellowship of the Spirit, any affection and mercy... Make my joy complete by being like-minded, being of the same mind, united in spirit. And then he goes on to say, living in purpose. But let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind esteem others better than yourself. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. And let this attitude be in you that was also in Jesus Christ. Oh, can I tell you, you know what his appeal was? Look, there doesn't need to be any strife in the church. You just quit worrying about yourself. And you esteem others better than yourself. And there will be a sweet fellowship in the Spirit. That's the commitment. Now let's talk about the communion. They could identify with each other in the right way because this communion was their identity in Jesus Christ. The breaking of bread talks about we come to the communion table and we do so as we reflect upon what Jesus has done and it took them back to their experience in the upper room. And there, he said, we, as we move forward, we're to remember me and when we remember me, you're to look upward and keep your eyes focused on me. Not on yourself, not inward, but upward. And here it's saying, Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, is the one that we must keep before us. And communion keeps us remembering the death of Jesus Christ. That in his great love for us, he came to this earth, he bore our sin, and when we come to the Lord's table, we remember Jesus. And we reflect also, as we well know, upon what needs to change in our own life. As we say with the psalmist, search me, O God, know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. So they identified with each other. Sure, there was oneness in worship. There was unity in their fellowship. They were living a shared life together, and they were together. I'm told in World War II that Germans conducted experiments to find the most effective ways of punishment to get information from their prisoners of war. Curiously enough, it wasn't putting bamboo shoots under their fingernails. It wasn't a waterboard. But they found that after a few days in solitary confinement, most men would tell all. And here's what I'm telling you. Isolation has a way of doing that. 
We become weak when it's just us, and we become wearied. Surely that's why the New Testament church must first stay connected with God, and then secondly, stay connected one with another. You're probably aware of this, but you read the New Testament, do you realize 55 times you will find that phrase, one another? We're to love one another. We're to serve one another. We're to care for one another. We're to forgive one another. We're to welcome one another. We're, we're to encourage one another. On and on and on. It's one another. And we talk about our individual faith, yes, but can I tell you, there's a plurality that's always uh, in play. It's about us together doing what God would have us do together. We're in this thing together. Surely one of the great needs of everyone's life is to be known by others and to be validated by them caring for us and accepting us. And here's what's going on here. They were no longer identifying with the world, but they were getting a new identity. Identity with the body of Christ in uh, their newfound faith. And that becomes the question for us. Do we have the same commonalities with each other as believers? Or do we really fit more? Are we acting more like the world at large? Are we trying to live in both worlds? Are we just people who come to church and act one way and we get out of the church we act another way? But I'm telling you, in a fellowship together, we have a oneness of heart, mind, and spirit that stays faithful to our God. Some of you are here today, perhaps, and your faithfulness has dwined. Truth of the matter is, in any kind of honest evaluation of your spiritual life, you don't look at your Bible, you don't read your Bible, you don't meditate on the Word of God, you rarely pray, you don't give, you don't serve. And you've convinced yourself that that's spiritually okay, but I'm here to tell you it's nearly not. It's really not. You see, Jesus said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not things I say? Listen, I'd be the first to confess that. I miss the mark every day. I'm not all that God wants me to be. But I'm telling you, i got a heart that I want to be what God wants. And that's what he expects of, he expects of us. And he expects some discipline in our life to be found faithful, to get up a little earlier and spend a little time with him, to reflect upon the truths and the principles of the Word of God and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Savior. I need to quit. We see these priorities as immersion, indoctrination, identification, and then the last one is this, what I'm calling intercession, because he says, and they continue steadfastly, the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, the breaking of bread, and then they were praying. These believers had demonstrated already that they were men and women of prayer. It's not surprising they were now galvanized and amalgamated together steadfastly because they had been in prayer together. It was John MacArthur who said, Prayer is the slender nerve that moves the muscles of the omnipotent God. So let's first talk under A about their practice. We read the history of the New Testament church, and you'll discover this you will find that they indeed were people, men and women, who prayed. They were laying hold of God and being sustained by surrendered 
and demonstrative life, they lived on bended knees. So it's not surprising they learned it from the Savior. They had been with Jesus, the apostles had. They had been with him when he rose up a great while before day and there went to a solitary place, as it says in Mark 1, and there he prayed. They had heard his prayer, the high intercessory prayer of John 17, where he called out for those who would believe in the days to come. They had heard him in Gethsemane to cry out in agony to the Father. And they would follow him, and to follow him, they would have to make their priority the place of prayer. Man, you read the book of Acts, you see the priority of prayer in Acts 1. They tarried in Jerusalem, they're praying for the Holy Spirit. When the replacement of Judas came there in Acts 1, it says, and they were praying. And then... In uh, chapter 3, John and Peter, they're going up to the temple. They're observing the designated hour of prayer. In chapter 4, they're praying for boldness. In chapter 6, the apostles said, we're going to devote ourselves to prayer and proclamation. And in chapter 7, we find Stephen is being stoned. And what's he doing? He's praying. In Acts 8... Indeed, they're praying for the Samaritans. In Acts 9, they're praying for a convert. In Acts 10, they're praying for God's resurrection power for a lady by the name of Dorcas. Later, a Gentile in that same chapter named Cornelius was in prayer to God, and so was Peter, and he matched them up, and the first Gentile believer would come to faith. That was their practice they prayed. There has been... Yet to be a Sunday that I didn't walk to this pulpit that I hadn't been at a place of prayer with some men in this church. Today's been no different. We met and we prayed. They prayed for me. We prayed one for another. And we're going to do that because we wouldn't get up here and try to proclaim the truth of the Word of God without praying. And I hope you wouldn't live your life a day without praying. That you would understand if you're going for God, then we pray. We're people who pray. We have confidence we're doing the will and word of God. If we pray, we connect with God. And so we see their practice. It ought to be our practice. But also, I quit with this. Let's talk about under B, the power. The reason the early church prospered and began to grow in quantum leaps, can I tell you, it was be- wasn't because they had a great strategy, a crafted mission statement, not because uh, that Peter pragmatically had figured everything out about what church should be. No, it, because, it was because God's power was upon them. It seems every mighty work of God you can trace back to people beseeching God in prayer. It was Hudson Taylor, the great missionary to China, who said the power of prayer has never been tried to its full capacity. If we want to see mighty wonders of God's divine power wrought in the place of weakness, failure, and disappointment, let us answer God's sturdy challenge to call upon Him, and He will answer us, and He will show us great and mighty things that we know not. The early church know what I know and what you know. Prayer is the real work, and intercession is the victory that's won. These are simple priorities. We're to be about the business of reaching people, telling them the good news of the gospel, 
telling them to repent and be converted, that their sins may be blotted out, then times of refreshing will come from the Lord. Be baptized, confess Christ, be immersed. We want the church to continue in the right doctrine, the apostles' doctrine in the Word of God. Understanding that with this truth comes the right duty, the right practice. Identifying together how in fellowship and coming to the Lord's table to be reminded that it's really all about Jesus. That's our fellowship. That's our life. And to be men and women who will pray. Will you pray for me this week? Will you pray that God would continue to use me? I want to be the person of prayer. I want to pray for this church faithfully. I'm praying for you. Let's pray one for another. Let's do things that are right. Let's keep the main thing the main thing. These are the priorities expected. Let's bow our heads today. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word that keeps us in our lane, the lane of following your perfect will. And even today, as we've talked about the priorities of the New Testament church, we realize sometimes we want to do things in a different way. But God, help us to default to the simple and basic expectations that you have for us in your word. I thank you for each one that's here today. I pray that the preaching of your word would do as you promised, wouldn't return void, but would accomplish the purpose for which it's been sent. I pray that we'd see some people baptized in the coming days. Somebody coming to faith in Christ to identify in the death, burial, and resurrection of our Savior. I pray as well that this church would grow strong in the Word of God and that we would love identifying one with another, that this fellowship would become sweeter and sweeter as every day with Jesus is sweeter than the day before. I pray that we would stay on task to be men and women who pray, who intercede one for another, who lay hold of you. So, Lord, help me to be found faithful. I pray that prayer for each one that's here today. I also pray for those whose hearts today are a little indifferent, a little hard, maybe a little calloused, a little hardened. I pray, O Holy Spirit of God, that you would be like a hammer that breaks a rock and you would soften their heart and soul to come home to you. I pray for any who need to make decisions today, maybe some who've been living in the far country like the prodigal, but they're coming to themselves today. The preaching of the word has done that. It's pointed them back home. I pray they would come unashamedly to say, I've drifted, but I want to come. I want to return to the Lord. I want to stand unashamedly for him I pray for that couple that's here today that's dealing with difficulties in their own marriage in their own life maybe some who are dealing with rebellious family members kids and grandkids and Lord I know how heart wrenching that can be oh God pour out your grace and mercy and help on them help them to love right to do right and be right And so this is your time. We lift up Jesus knowing that when we do, you'll draw people to him. That's our heart's prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together. David's going to lead us in his invitation hymn. What a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear. I'll be here at the front. Staff will be here if you'd like to come pray. This will be your opportunity while we sing. God calls you. Come now. Come quickly while we sing.
God bless you for being here today, church. Um, let me just say, you know, we've been here about six months, and uh, somebody told me that you're not tired of me yet, and that made me feel good. Uh, it usually takes about six months for me to wear people out. I, I hope I don't, but uh, you, you have been so kind and gracious to Mary and I, and I know she would say the very same thing if she were here. Thank you for loving us well. I hope that we can love you in the same way. You've been a blessing to us. You continually uh, are a blessing to us. We love you. You're in our prayers. We're praying for God's best for Hoffman Town Church. What a privilege to serve you. God bless you for being here. <laughs>